You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. 22 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock. You best believe that our decision to uh, halt uh, the distribution of the vaccine that we received from uh, AstraZeneca, uh, well, from the Serum Institute of India, but of course licensed by AstraZeneca, that it's making international headlines. And um, we got questions earlier for Dr. Chris Smith, our Naked Scientist, around this issue. And he joins us now. And we'll take some of your other questions pertaining to science, anything and everything science-related um, this Monday, 11 And Chris, good afternoon. How are you today? Yeah, I'm in good shape. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Um, do you know how excited we were last week that our vaccines had landed? But now it turns out that um, we did trials, of course. We were looking at trials regarding this variant. And uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine is only 20%. It only provides about 20% protection against a mild version of the current variant. So we're going to have to change tack. So one of our yeah, it's very frustrating this isn't it? I, I was yeah. watching the headlines over the weekend and I saw this story come through and I thought oh no my heart sank because I knew you know very much the conversation we'd we'd been having previously about the excitement around the rollout the initiation of the vaccination campaign in in South Africa and Southern Africa and of course that's now on the back foot while we await the the decision interesting this though isn't it as to mm-hmm. as to exactly what the thinking is behind this and uh, some are saying are the numbers robust enough to justify this course of action also we don't know what the impact on severe disease will be which mm-hmm. is ostensibly why we're trying to vaccinate people in the first place get vaccines into people save lives is the bottom line here because the people who need those vaccines are people at most risk they're generally people who are in otherwise ill health or older and all that we have at the moment is data showing from a relatively small number of people that y- that younger people aren't protected from getting mild illness. Now, that's not the same as saying this won't save lives. And and I think there are probably going to be some hard questions being put to the people behind these decisions. I mean, it's reasonable when you don't know what's going on to pause, mm. take stock and then be prepared to change your decision. But I hope that... Uh, that the, the, the justification for this course of action is is uh, is forthcoming, so we can understand why people are, are taking the decision that they yeah. have. So, well, that sample was one thousand seven hundred and fifty healthy adults. So you're saying that average that's... age thirty one. Yeah. And um, this is the problem because if you look at the average age of a COVID victim, it's more like one hundred and one. No, I, I mean I'm being slightly facetious, but. <laughs> the risk rises with age. Mm -hmm. The number of people who have died under the age of 60 is very, very small in comparison with the number of people who've died over the age of 60. So therefore, when making policy judgments about the rollouts of vaccines in older people, one must make sure they are represented adequately in trials so that you can actually ask that question. And we haven't seen that data yet. Maybe someone has that data. Maybe there are other elements to this that have yet to be revealed and uh, and more clarity will be forthcoming. Mm. So one of our listeners wanted to know about what does it mean to say that the vaccine has expired? Well, any medicine, in fact, any product has a shelf life on it. Bizarrely, a bottle of water has a shelf life on it, despite the fact that water is one of the oldest molecules on the planet and some of the water washing around in the ocean is going to be here since the day the planet formed 4.57 billion years ago or so. So therefore, you have to have a shelf life on things. It's sort of a way when you're marketing, it stops uh, people from doing dodgy marketing where they sell you stuff that's ancient. But for safety reasons, we put shelf life dates on products and in this way 
you can say that they have been tested, they're known to be viable, they're known to be safe, they're known to be effective up until this point. We can't lay that same guarantee thereafter. And, and this means that there's, there's no danger that people will be given an agent that's deactivated or gone off and, and would give them false reassurance. That's the right. whole point. And, and this is there for a very good reason. It's very important that we have these expiry dates on things because things don't last forever. There are very few things that, that are completely shelf safe and will have an indefinite shelf life. And, and this protects people. So it's, it's good. But when it comes to medicines, of course, and the medicines that people need, if that date is it's expired, then you have to throw the medicines away. And when you've got something which is in very short supply around the world and you're sitting on a million doses of it that will expire if you don't use it, then there's a million other people that will be saying, well, I would quite like to have had that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the questions that's come in. Hillary's called us also on a related uh, question around vaccines. Hi, Hillary. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Welcome. Good. So shall I... Yes, what would you like to know? Question? Your question. Okay. Go ahead. What I would like... Um, hello, Chris. I always am delighted to hear you and your amazing knowledge um, and your wonderful way of explaining it, too. Um, what my question is, is um, I have a daughter of childbearing age. My children are all of childbearing age, but they was, they're all in the um, either medical or paramedical work in that they're um, therapists. And she and her friends have been told... Um, uh, that there's a caution about um, this, I think it's the AstraZeneca vaccine, in that it can affect fertility. Is, do you have any information about this? They have spoken to the gynecologists, the obstetricians and so on, who are taking it very seriously, but they haven't got it at it. So I don't know if you have any information about where this idea came from and whether it has any validity. Hmm. Hillary, thank you um, for the question. Chris, any insights? Yeah, hello, Hillary. Thanks very much. The answer is that um, all, all products and all medicines might have some kind of impact on your general health. Every medicine has a side effect. We're not, a, we're not familiar with there being any kind of impact on fertility from these particular vaccines. Although, you know, you, you can't say never a medicine because you just can't. But the bottom line is that it's gone into millions of people and at this sort of scale, if there were dramatic impacts on fertility, we would be beginning to know about them, not just from the coronavirus era, but the fact that the AstraZeneca drug is actually based on a vaccine developed over many years that's already seen active service against Ebola in West Africa in mm. the early part of the last decade. And uh, therefore, there's a lot of follow-up data and a lot of follow-up data on diverse populations around the world. And therefore, we can be reassured that we haven't seen any kind of adverse reaction in that respect reported. What we did report actually on The Naked Scientist last week was a, a paper that got relatively little attention, I think, because it got eclipsed by a number of other announcements and breaking headlines and things, which, which meant that people overlooked this paper. It was in the Journal of Reproduction. And researchers in Germany collected samples from men in Iran who had caught coronavirus infection. They also collected samples from men who didn't have coronavirus infection and they showed that there's quite a big dent in your fertility through having caught coronavirus. These men had lower sperm counts, they had also chemical changes to those body fluids which we know are associated with higher levels of inflammation and this persisted for months after the infection. There was some evidence it began to improve towards the end of their study and admittedly it's one study but it was a well-controlled study, it was a detailed analysis Therefore, I'm inclined to believe there's something in it. 
and therefore if you were tossing up vaccine small claim uh, probably fake news of an impact on your fertility versus a real impact on fertility in men who catch coronavirus I know which I would choose and in fact I have chosen because I've, I've gone You've and had a vaccine so yes. therefore yeah um, so the, the, uh, the bottom line is that anything that impacts on your general health can impact on your fertility and and so therefore anything that impacts on you severely like coronavirus could could impact on your fertility too so that would be you know an easy decision to make vaccine don't catch coronavirus or take your chances it could impact on your fertility hmm. thank you for the question hillary we're taking more of your calls for the naked scientist that's dr chris smith this afternoon on zero one one eight eight three oh seven oh two polo so you're calling us from bedford view good afternoon hello Aza. hello chris um Hi. i just want to find out there's a lot of people that i know that believe that potassium permanganate repels snakes like hahaha. Is that true or is that just speculation? That potassium permanganate repels snakes. I've not come across this. Um, it depends how you use it. Potassium permanganate is just a, a powder and, and it's a dark color when it's just as, as the crystals. Uh, it, it can be used as an antiseptic because it um, destroys things. You can you can break stuff down and clean stuff with it. But um, I'm not familiar with its impact on snakes. I would think because snakes have an excellent sense of smell and taste, if there was a high concentration of it in the environment, they probably would steer clear because they're going to steer clear of any kind of uh, high concentration of thing they're not familiar with. So I don't know uh, is the answer to this question. If anybody knows better, mm-hmm. let me know. But I can't think of an obvious reason why it, it would repel snakes, first and foremost. Uh, other, other than just they don't like things that um, that are f- unfamiliar to them. But, you know, if anyone knows whether potassium permanganate will make a snake go away or hiss off, I suppose you could say, do <laughs> let us know. Yes. Uh, here's a question while we're still close to the issue of uh, vaccines and the coronavirus. One says, um, the CDC in the U.S. reported that there are more than 600 variant uh, cases identified in uh, the U.S. And so what should the strategy be in developing vaccines? Well, this is spot on. I don't know if the number 600 is is accurate anymore. We know of thousands of variants of the coronavirus that have been documented since the outbreak first began over a year ago. We know that, of course, multiple countries have disclosed more exciting exotic variants where various changes or mutations have come together as a constellation of changes in the virus. And that has led to enhanced transmission. South Africa is one example in the UK, another example in Brazil. Another example, all of this happening independently. America also now has a number of documented mutations and and changes in this way. So what this is telling us is that the virus is not a a static thing. It's a moving target. What makes it move is evolution. It's evolving and optimizing its ability to spread as it goes through humans. And where you've got areas where there's high levels of, of infection, you've got lots of rolling of the genetic dice, giving the virus many opportunities to introduce these changes genetically and select out the ones that work really very well. Because the virus is on the move, we have to make sure our vaccines are also equally agile. And in some respects they are, because they can be relatively easily updated to represent changes that the virus has made in the vaccine, but the headache isn't making the vaccine or the intellectual property that goes around actually how you do this in the first place It's the scalability, how you turn that updated vaccine into uh, a drug in a syringe and then into the arms of millions, if not billions of people around the world. 
And this is why this is proving such a headache, because if you have got a variant that emerges, because people are highly mobile and the virus hides, you know, half, half of people who've got it have no symptoms whatsoever, it flies around under the radar and it can be all over the place before you've even detected that you've got this happening. And so we're going to really struggle to contain it for this particular reason, which is why vaccines help us a bit, but they're not the only answer to this solution. We're going to need a combination of public health measures and also drugs. And there was quite an interesting study, hasn't again had that much attention yet, but a study came out of Israel uh, a week or so ago. Um, in fact, the clinical trial data came out on Friday where they have made a drug or repurposed a drug that was originally a cancer remedy. And this is a, an... Uh, an anti, I think it's CD24, immune molecule-based therapy, but they claim that in a small group of people with severe to moderate disease, they gave them this drug and it helped to temper the response of the immune system in the lungs of these patients, and most of them who were treated went home within three to five days from hospital, which was a marked turnaround compared to how long you would expect those people mm. to be in hospital. So people are saying, is this a, is this a game changer? You know, there's been lots of game changers in the coronavirus pandemic, hasn't there? But it might well therefore be that we have a way of vaccinating people to attenuate or mitigate against very severe disease, but we also, in parallel to that, we have to search out drugs that mean that if people do catch it, we can treat them. Okay. Uh, let's get back to the lines. Leone, you're calling us from Emerentia. Hi, Leone. Hi, dear. I'm turning my radio down. I wanted to ask the doctor, I was reading about how bats, certainly in China, um, house dozens and dozens, I think it was 90 or something, different viruses, including Ebola and whatnot, whatnot. And I presume that bats here in Australia and all over the world are the same. And, of course, we don't eat them here as they do in China. But, you know, um, is there any way that the bats in other countries are also causing problems? Mm-hmm. Leonie, thank you. Your uh, thoughts, Chris? The answer is um, yes, they do. And um, we, we think actually there are thousands of coronaviruses, and that's just the coronaviruses out there, many of them lurking in, in the bat population. Really good example of this, Ebola, you already stated that, um, and where bats snuggle up to humans, the viruses in them can jump. Another very good example, Nipah virus initially documented in Malaysia and Singapore in the late 90s where it caused an outbreak. We've subsequently documented more outbreaks of Nipah virus in parts of Bangladesh, for example. And when people have looked, they found that this is where humans end up interacting too closely with these bats. In the case of the uh, Bangladesh outbreaks, what was happening is people were doing date date, um, palm juice tapping and the bats like the date palm juice as well. And so the bats were flying down in the nighttime and drinking the juice that the people were trying to tap out of the trees and the bat saliva has got Nipah virus in it and it was getting into the juice and mm. the people were then drinking it and they were catching it. So it's a, it, it, it's a history repeats itself all over the place where you get human overpopulation and po- high population density and encroachment on the natural world bringing animals with their viruses into close proximity to humans which is a, a big giant woodpile just waiting for someone to set light to it. You are therefore increasing the likelihood that things harboured by wild animals can jump the species barrier and get into us. And then, of course, because we're a completely susceptible population, very well networked, very well connected, all living in very high density, it then takes off. And that's exactly what happened with this coronavirus. And it's what happened with Ebola uh, about uh, eight years ago. Mm. Let's get back to uh, the lines. In Kempton Park is Mzamo with his question. Hi, Mzamo. Hi, Alan, Chris. How are you? We're good. Welcome. I'm good. I just wanted to find out something about the viruses. 
how does the virus know it needs to change and to change to what form so that it can keep its existence? Right. Um, thank you for that. Mm. The intelligence in a virus. The answer is it doesn't know because a virus is not alive in the sense that it doesn't think. It's a tiny particle, one ten thousandth of a millimetre across each individual virus particle of coronavirus, and it is nothing more than an infectious bag of genes. And those genes contain the genetic instructions to get into a cell, hijack the cell, turn it into a virus factory, and make that cell spew out hundreds to thousands more virus particles, which can then go on and infect other cells in your body, but critically also infect other cells in someone else's body when you cough, sneeze, or in some other way dispense that virus back out into the environment. So, how does the virus know, in inverted commas, to evolve to become better at doing that? It's a numbers game. It is all about selection and evolution. Mm -hmm. When a virus grows in your body, from time to time, it makes genetic spelling mistakes. This is just a, a, a random thing that happens by accident. So you end up with a virus where its genetic code has changed a bit. Now, most of the time when this happens, it will completely screw up the virus. It's like putting the wrong wheel on your car. The car's not going to drive very well. It will probably go off the road and get stuck in the mud. So your car's history. But say someone puts into the car accidentally massive great wheels with much better tread that work really well. Suddenly your car is going to have a lot more ability to hug, hug the road, accelerate very quickly and swerve around everyone else on the road and go very fast. And that's exactly what happens. Occasionally, a virus will emerge, which has got the right combination of genetic spelling mistakes, that it doesn't disable the virus, it weaponizes the virus. It gives it an additional advantage. And when you get a virus like that, once it spreads, it spreads much better. And very quickly, because all its progeny have got that ability, they spread much better. And the progeny of those progeny spread much better. And you've got something which now is taking over the population. And so you see these waves of virus emerge where... A virus with a new characteristic that's better comes along and takes over as the dominant strain until something displaces that by being even better. And it's an evolutionary arms race. Meanwhile, the human race is fighting back by changing our behavior. Our immune system responds when it sees these things. Um, and, and as a result, you get this kind of continuous arms race going on where eventually they settle into a sort of equilibrium where the virus is about as optimal as it can get and we're fighting back as well as we can, and you reach a, a sort of stable point where they, they, they cease to, to, to make each other more or less ill, as it were. Hmm. Uh, more virus questions. Lena in Highlands North, hi. Hi. Hi, my, hi. hi Chris. I just want to ask you, I heard on a, on a podcast by a doctor who is involved in, in one of the hospitals here with the, 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 in a, the, the COVID ward. And he said that because of what you call it, the Johnson and uh, Johnson uh, vaccine, he said that it actually hasn't got antibodies, and that perhaps because of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, you only need one uh, vaccine, not two. Okay. And he said, but maybe with the Johnson and Johnson, you might actually need a, a second vaccine. So I just want to find out because I believe the AstraZeneca isn't quite suitable yet yes. or has got a problem and that maybe we might roll out the Johnson I've got to push Johnson. you on, on the question, Lena. I'm out of time. Yeah, I just want to know whether the Johnson and Johnson um, uh, vaccine has got antibodies okay. or not.
Because okay. you know, I'm just curious. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Lena. Um, your thoughts, Thanks Chris, the quickly? The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a modified virus that delivers the outer coat of the coronavirus message and makes you make an immune response to it. As such, it's got the same constraints as any other vaccine in that if the virus changes, you have to change your vaccine to keep pace. The benefit of Johnson & Johnson's product is that you need at the moment one dose with that in order to provoke okay. that immune response. But other vaccines at the moment, they're using two. What we don't know, though, is uh, whether you can use that Johnson & Johnson vaccine more than once, because if you have it and you make an immune response against the thing that's being used to carry the virus message into the body, which we think will happen, it might mean that then you can't go back and use it again and again and again because you've started to defend yourself against the thing okay. that's bringing in the message in the first place. So that remains to be seen. Right. There were a few other questions on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but you know this is a running uh, issue whenever we, we, we bring you on, Chris, so there'll be ample opportunities to raise these questions again. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Take care.